I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Tilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, B. Lund, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David, Gary, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. Welcome back to Parallax Views, a guest that I've spoken with in the past. Always enjoy having him on the show. Filmmaker Fred Olin Ray, I would say he's a maverick filmmaker who's done uh, everything from, you know, Hallmark movies to uh, genre films like Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and Witch Academy. Also is the head honcho at Retro Media, which releases some really fun titles. Uh, and he's the author of a new book called Deep Red, which has connection to the legendary Edward D. Wood Jr. Uh, so how are you doing, Fred? I, I'm doing great today. Staying dry. It's uh, storming, storming here. So if you lose the internet connection, it's not my fault. <laughs> so, Fred, if you could, uh, we're going to talk about your book, Deep Red. I think this is your debut novel, but uh, maybe we should give some background first. This uh, is an interesting book because it kind of started out as uh, – a screenplay uh, that you had Ed Wood write for you back in the 70s. 
Uh, before we get into that, could you talk a little bit about how did you first become aware of Ed Wood? You know, when I first uh, came on him, uh, I'd never seen Plan 9. Oh, I'd seen Bride of the Monster. Uh, but I, I, he wasn't Ed Wood at that point. While he, in his lifetime, he was never Ed Wood, the Ed Wood that people think about. That hadn't come along yet. And um, I've always been interested uh, when I had nothing going on uh, as a young person wanting to be a filmmaker. Uh, I always had um, uh, the idea that if I could connect myself with someone who had credits, who was a proven entity, that uh, somebody might give me the money. They wouldn't give it to me because I didn't have the experience or the knowledge or anything, but they might give it to uh, me as a producer if I had a, a known director or a producer or a, um, a star, a named star. And uh, a friend of mine uh, hooked me up uh, with Ed Wood. And uh, I thought, well, here's a guy who has some credits. I mean, they were old, but he did have, he had credits in, Bela Lugosi, you know, was probably better known uh, in the 70s than he was in 1956 or whenever they made those movies. So I reached out uh, to Ed through this friend of mine. And uh, I mean, obviously, I was in Florida at the time and he was in California. So I knew there was no there was no way I was going to bring him out to direct. And I had an idea for a movie I wanted to make about a shark man you know, that walked around, you know, so you wouldn't have to get in the water that much. And uh, so I gave him a, a holler and um, he was very excited and I made a deal. And we started working on a movie uh, called Beach Blanket Bloodbath. And uh, that's how it all started. I love that title, Beach Blanket Bloodbath. I feel like you were going for the uh, pirating those old... Um... Annette Funicelli and uh, Frankie Avalon movies. <laughs> well, you know, uh, it's I, I was one of these people uh, that whenever I was faced with something that I thought had great value that I could put my hands on for almost nothing, I always tried to take some advantage. And when we finished a movie called Star Slammer years ago, a film I did with Jack H. Harris of The Blob, uh, we had these fantastic sets we had built for this women's prison in space. So on the last day before we moved out, I brought in a bunch of actors and we shot a scene of Beach Blanket Bloodbath. Yeah, uh, didn't didn't it have a Forrest J. Ackerman, right? Corey was in it, Martin Nicholas was in it, Bobby Brzee, Don Wildsmith, uh, a couple other people who worked with me. And we didn't really follow along with what Ed and I were going to do. We just kind of made up something, you know, and called it Beach Blanket Bloodbath. And it exists as about a six minute clip that's shown here and there. I think I've had it on a few of my DVDs. Uh, but the, the the situation with Ed was that we, we came to an agreement on what the story would be. We knew what the story was going to be, and he was to start the script. And I was waiting for it to come. And it got near Christmas time, and I sent him a Christmas card. And the card came back, moved, no forwarding address. And I went, whoa, what the hell? So I called my friend. He goes, oh, yeah, Ed died. <laughs> he died suddenly. And I went, oh, my God, where's my script? And I never knew what became of his wife or his stuff. And as I've said before, you know, once once I finally got to Hollywood, I didn't care anymore. What I did do, though, is in the early uh, early 80s, is I took the story that we had 
come up with and I made my own script based on the story and I didn't make it. You know, people go, oh, why didn't you make it? Well, you know, in this business, it's not as easy as to want to make a film. You have to find someone who's willing to give you the money uh, to make the film. Uh, and and so I, I I wanted to try my hand. I was doing short stories at the time. I'd sold some stuff to Weird Tales and Argosy Magazine and some things of that nature. And I wanted to write a novel. But you have to have a pretty detailed outline to do that. So I thought, well, why not use the script based on Ed's story, and I'll use that as the outline to write a novel. And that's what I did. And then I didn't like it. I didn't like the novel. It was very amateurish. I was very young at the time I wrote it. So it just kind of went into a drawer, you know, a digital drawer eventually. And um, recently, I wanted to test some software. There's a software called Pro Writing Aid. Supposedly, it looks for grammatical errors and punctuation and how you could better do a sentence. And I wanted to test it on something. So I said, well, why don't I plug this old novel that's sitting here into this software and see what it see what it says? So I, I went and I was playing around with the software, with the novel. And as I was going, I thought it was getting better. <laughs> I felt like it was getting better. And now with self-publishing being as easy as it is, I thought, you know what? It cost me nothing to make this available to people. And it's a curiosity piece. I, I never claimed to be a great novelist, but I thought, why not make it available to people as a curiosity piece? And if they like it, they like it. If they don't like it, you know, it's not an expensive item. So I went ahead and um, I went ahead after putting it through this whole program and rewriting it, basically, I went ahead and uh, published it. So talking more, why did you change the title? Why did it become Deep Red as opposed to Beach Blanket Bloodbath? Well, you know what? I don't think at the time, you know how you go. I mean, 30 years passes or whatever. And, you know, when I was uh, in 1978, I guess I would have been about 24 years old. And what seemed like a great idea then didn't seem like such a great idea because it wasn't funky or funny. Uh, and, you know, I, I originally the screenplay was called Blood Tide. And when I looked around, I saw that there were tons of books already out there called Blood Tide. And I thought, well, that's not a great idea. And I knew there was a movie called Deep Red, or it was one title of many titles for one particular movie. But there weren't any real books called Deep Red. Uh, so I thought, okay, let me let me do that. It's, it's just mysterious enough, and uh, it intrigues people. And if I had a nice cover, you know. So it just I just felt like people would feel that it wasn't beach blanket bloodbath. <laughs> you know, it didn't, it didn't, it, it wouldn't have lived up to that title. Do you want to talk a little bit about the plot? I know the story includes a uh, rookie police photographer and uh, two sensuous lesbian scientists and their rampaging creation, the half man, half fish monster. Yeah, that's kind of a, that's kind of it. I mean, it's, um, it's, uh, it's, uh, I think initially, when I first did the script and I and and I decided not to make it, um, I went ahead and wrote another script called Biohazard, which I thought was something s sort of along the same lines. And I did get that one made, but it was um, it was it was it was probably an early thought of uh, doing a movie like Biohazard, and uh, and I lived in Florida and I loved the idea of that creature walks among us. It was just a big mask and the hands and he was wearing the 
kind of sewn together sailcloth outfit. And I thought, there's a monster because I could sculpt. You know, I used to make my own masks for my movies and things like that. So I said, I could sculpt the creature mask and I could do the hands. And then I wouldn't have, and a fin coming out the back, a rip in the back and a shark fin coming out of the guy's back. And uh, I liked the whole idea of a shark that could walk around, uh, could go out in the ocean, but they could also walk around and, uh, on, on the land and, uh, and raise havoc, you know? Um, so that was kind of, that was kind of it. And uh, growing up in Florida, you know, I knew the state pretty well. And uh, the town of Pine Level was a real town, but it was a ghost town. And I had visited it uh, or looked at it. It was nothing but an empty cow pasture. When I saw it as a teenager, I was fascinated by ghost towns. And I found a few artifacts there, but I decided to set it in Pine Level because I knew there was a, a real town, but it no longer existed. And um, it was it was tough because I'm, I'm not um, I'm not a long form writer. So I tend to slip into almost first person, you know, um, observations while I'm writing in third person, which is where I felt like everything had gone wrong and why I thought it looked so amateurish. And it may still look amateurish. I don't know. But it's, I know it's better than it was when I started. Are there any uh, overlaps between uh, maybe what you did with this novel and what you did with, um, you know, that full moon feature recently, Piranha Woman? Well, you know, I think, with Piranha Women, as I maybe we discussed this before, I saw that more as a sort of a night stalker. If you ever remember the Darren McGavin, he was the oh yeah, Kolchak, amazing, and yeah, yeah. So many times the monster never even spoke. Uh, even when he had um, there was one where he was tracking a female vampire. It was one of the first episodes. She never spoke, and uh, and the whole story was kind of told from this investigative uh, position, where the menaces. Um, you know, would show up and kill somebody. And then this other person kept trying to put the pieces together to get to the bottom of what was doing it. And so that was kind of the approach. And that was kind of the approach of, um, of Piranha Women, you know, because, and it, because we, we do realize there's some science in there. I'm one of these people, when I read a script, if you haven't done your homework, I will, I will investigate on my own. And I did know that they were in Sarasota, where I grew up, there was a laboratory that experimented with sharks in cancer, human cancer research, because there's something like 92 DNA components of a shark that are identical to people. And I don't know why, but uh, that that same concept from uh, Deep Red was the same concept I applied to piranha women, that there is actually, there is a sliver where no matter how thin it is, there's a sliver of, of, of uh, truth to the fact that people are working on uh, cancer research and stuff of that nature using uh, sharks. I simply switched it to piranhas because Charlie already had a poster from the 1980s <laughs> called Piranha Women. And they, they said, uh, this is the greatest poster of a movie we never made. So can you make a movie that will fit this poster? And I said, OK, I can. Do you want to talk a little bit about maybe, um, you know, when you're writing, say, short stories or a novel like Deep Red, what's the difference uh, in approach that you have to take when you're writing something like a short story or a novel as opposed to like a screenplay? Well, screenplays, you know, novel, you can pick it up, put it down, you can read it for a month, uh, whatever it is. But a screenplay, there's a structure 
that people expect, especially in television movies, in TV movies. And you, you, you're expected to follow this structure in a screenplay. And it can be helpful and it's also hindering. I mean, I could break it down for you, but you probably find it very boring uh, how uh, most most of these television movies and things of that nature are created, the, the screenplays. But it is helpful for a writer because you're working in, say, eight or nine acts, which are basically predetermined commercial breaks and trying to figure out the psyche of the person watching it and when when they're most likely to change the tie, uh, channel is when you want to historically have something important happen that will make them stick with you. And, uh, you know, you go 20 minutes on the first thing. Usually TV movies go 20 minutes without a commercial so that you're hooked in and less likely to change to another show that's already 20 minutes in. So you have your first break at 20 minutes and then it's 10 minutes after that. And every 10 minutes, there's got to be a mini, a mini climax. Something happens at the 10 minute mark every 10 minutes till you hit the what would be the one hour mark. And that's where your biggest mini climax happens, because that's when people are most likely to change the channel where another show might be starting. So it goes it goes like that. But if you know that you have to have a mini climax every 10 pages, then you know that you need to build to something. And then you can when coming back from the break, you can build to the next one and the next one. So it, it's actually helpful. And uh, and, it, and it and it works. That's why people do it. I know you mentioned, uh, you know, the influence of something like Creature from the Black Lagoon. I know also you were a young reader of famous monsters of Filmland. Of course, we mentioned uh, Forrest J. Ackerman earlier. You know, I'm assuming you grew up on those old um, AIP movies, American International Pictures. Uh, did you have any other influences? I know you had that um, uh, a fanzine in in like '72, right? Dagon, which I assume is, uh, you know, sort of Lovecraft inspired that title. Uh, what yes. what were some of your influences in terms of the horror and sci-fi fantasy that influenced you? Well, you know, people, you know, everybody, and when I was a kid, everybody loved the universal horror films. And, but it wasn't like today. You had to, if you hopefully had a creature feature on your local channel, and if Bride of Frankenstein was going to play at fi- uh, Friday night at 1130, you either watched it or you might wait years for another chance. It wasn't as easy as picking it up, putting it in a machine and watching it whenever you want. So Famous Monsters kind of filled in the gap of what you might want to see in the future, like Werewolf of London, which I'd never heard of before when I was a kid. And uh, so you're kind of obsessed with these universal films uh, because they're so rare and they're hard to come by on TV. You know, only a creature feature or shock theater or something might run them. But in around you, in your real world, was the drive-in. And every week there were horror films at the drive-in that were much more accessible than shock theater. And you had choices. And of course the, the Kings, uh, the, the people who knew how to do it right was American International Pictures. So as you go, you know, American International was one of those companies where you really believed that there was a quality level that uh, whatever it was that you were going to go and the movie was going to be professional rather than sort of being trapped in a drive-in and all of a sudden the ghastly ones by Andy Milligan comes up on the screen. You know, there was a lot of difference between one movie and another movie. So you learn to, you learn to look out for the new Hammer films. You learn to look out to see what American International was going to bring out. And to a lesser degree, somebody like Crown International. But they're definitely, AIP was, was a company that I kept my eye on. And of course, 
Dagon was a fanzine in the era, the great golden era of fanzines, uh, which I did when I was in high school. And I did uh, three issues of that, and I did a fourth uh, fanzine issue of uh, that. I never released it. I printed it. But, you know, like most kids, life catches up to you. And you're not living in your parents' back room anymore, and you've got a baby, and you've got a job, and all the playtime seems to kind of go out of it <laughs> at some point in your life. So I actually published one fanzine called Fantasy Film Profile, which was the first interview of Rico Browning. Oh, from Creature. Yeah, yeah. Pertaining his work in The Creature from the Black Lagoon. I was probably 16 or 17 years old. I went to the Miami Seaquarium where he was training a sea lion called Salty, which lived in his bathtub at home. And he was making, getting ready to make a movie called Salty the Sea Lion. And I went down there and he sat sat at an outdoor uh, picnic table and I interviewed him about the creature. And that's where I learned that Tom Hennessy had played the creature on land in the second a creature movie. And um, a lot of the information that I got from R Rico uh, found its way, you know, into fandom through me. Uh, and uh, but I was the first person who ever cornered him about the creature and sat him down for an interview. Was it crazier back then? Uh, trying to get in touch with different actors that you may have been fans of, a fan of, um, you know, or, or just getting to work on films. I know you worked on movies like Shockwaves, not as like a director, but just in the crew. Uh, you know, it's not like we had the internet back then. How did you sort of navigate yourself into the world of movies? In some, in some ways, certain things were easier than they are today. My, my best friend, Martin, who was in Alien Dead and uh, helped me write that script, and we did you a lot of stuff. You cut out for a second. You said your best yeah, you, friend. Uh, my my best friend is Martin Nicholas, who lives in Sarasota, and and we were sort of co-conspirators in all of this. But we would. His father was was one of my junior high school teachers, and uh, during the summer, his dad was taking a course at the, one of the universities in Tampa, and he'd let us ride along. And Martin and I were such nerds; we would spend the entire time in their library uh, all day bag lunch until their dad, his dad was done. But what we did is we researched things. And what we discovered is that if you opened up the London telephone book and it was there, Ray Harryhausen was in the telephone book. Thorley Walters, uh, Evelyn Karloff, they were in the telephone book. And so I would reach out to Ray Harryhausen because his street address was in the phone book. And I interviewed Ray Harryhausen. And then I, I would just send him a questionnaire, generally hoping they would get back to me. And Harryhausen wrote me from location of Golden Voyage of Sinbad. I still have it. I still have his letter. And we were able to actually find people that today there's a system set up where people are more protected. You know, their names aren't in the phone book. They're not that easy to find because I guess back then there were only a handful of people like me who might ever look in the phone book to see if you're in it. But um we were able to contact Alferdy Maine and a lot of other people, um, you know, who may seem obscure to you, but they were big deals to us. And I interviewed Ferdy Maine for my fanzine and Walter Keenig from Star Trek and uh, Ray Harryhausen. And I got to know Robert Block pretty well, the writer and Richard Matheson. And uh, it was uh, it was it was kind of fun. It was almost like being a detective, you know. Yeah, it's interesting because in a way, I think. Uh... You gave a second life to a lot of different actors over the years. Uh, you know, I, I'm assuming you saw guys like Russ Tamblin in all those old Al Adams and Drive-In movies. Uh, and then you're casting him later. 
Yes. Yeah. Yeah, because to me, it's like when I met Mamie Van Doren, I had no clue about her better films. I only knew about her from like Navy versus the Night Monsters. And uh, and Russ, you know, I knew Russ because he was in, you know, Satan Sadists and stuff. I, the MGM films, I was aware of them. But when I had an opportunity later in life to start hiring people, if you had made an impression on me at the drive-in, I would try to hire you and put you in my film. Sometimes I'd get a lot of them in one movie, like Commando Squad. I had a lot of great people in Commando Squad. And, you know, I mean, I even had Hunts Hall. I had Marie Windsor, uh, you know, Tony Isley, you know, uh, Anthony Isley. And uh, just Cameron Mitchell and Aldo Ray and all the people that I really enjoyed. Ross Hagen, Sid Haig, Bill Smith. People John Carradine's my favorite. <laughs> John Carradine. I did a bunch of stuff with John Carradine. That was you know, that was, there was some people that you just, there were certain people that you had, had a special cachet, Telly Savalas, you know, Martin Landau, people like that, that Lee Van Cleef, that you're, you're telling them what to do. It was very difficult, but you didn't tell them how to act. You know, you don't tell Lee Van Cleef. I mean, it wasn't that he wasn't willing to listen to you. I just didn't feel qualified. And he would look at me and he'd say, I just like that. You want anything else? I said, you know, if you like it, I like it. Oh, let's move on. You know what I mean? And that's as some of these actors were so far beyond me. I was very young when I got uh, started directing uh, and I was uh, thrown into films with actors who had won Oscars and stuff. And I didn't try to I didn't try to put my vision on them. You know, it's that would be silly. I love how you would always find you. You would find some really obscure names to put in your movies, too. Uh, like, you know, I was always surprised that you got uh, Carol Borland. Uh, who played Luna in Mark of the Vampire for both Sculpts and uh, I think she was in Biohazard as she well. She was in Biohazard as well, yeah. You know, there's a people, there are a lot of people, that, that and, and I'm sure they went right by you as well, but when I did Armed Response, I hired Berta Benning to play the detective because he'd been the male lead in Melting Man, the incredible Melting Man. I hired Bruce Fairburn uh, as the, the brother of David Carradine because he had been in Vampire Hookers in the Philippines with John Carradine. And Brent Huff had been in Perils of Gwendolyn. And I mean, it, and it's it's uh, all these different uh, guys. David Goss, it was David Goss was in She with Sandal Bergman. I mean, there, if you had some kind of weird little cachet and I liked you, I would try to get you in my film. I had Gabe Dell Jr., who was the son of the one of the Bowery boys. And, uh, you know, it was just like a toy. You know what I mean? It was like it was like because people people say, God, I didn't know you worked with uh, like Alana Stewart, who was married to Rod Stewart and George Hamilton. And she's still pretty well known. But most people don't remember that I, I made a movie with her. And Lance Kerwin, does that sound? Lance Guest, who was in uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's boyfriend, I think, in Halloween, Two, And he was yes. the last star, last starfighter. And he was just he was just one of the guys on the airplane in a movie I made called Mach 2, I think. So, you know, yeah, I, I tried to gang the cast up because it, it was fun for me. And it didn't hurt the films. It helped the films. These people were good actors. Yeah, I was going to say, uh, and we'll get back to uh, Deep Red in a second here, but uh, was it ever, like, difficult working with certain actors? Because some of these actors had, uh, you know, um, had sort of larger-than-life personalities or, you know, uh, some had personal demons. I know, you know, Aldo Ray had his issues, uh, Cameron Mitchell. Uh, was it ever, like, wild working with these actors? Any good stories? You know, there are, there are you know, I have my, my memoirs coming out. 
And there's a lot of stories uh, in there. And I made a legal disclaimer at the beginning uh, just to make sure that people understand that this is my opinion. This is the view from where I sat. And uh, you can people may see it differently than I saw it. It's an opinion. But I mean, you know, Aldo Ray was fine. I've worked with Aldo quite a few times. And uh, Cameron Mitchell wasn't a problem. The problem people would be like Tanya Roberts uh, or Michael Nuri, the guy from Flashdance, who uh, uh, we really, I mean, the stories about him, I didn't put them in the book because I was afraid that, you know, I don't, I don't need a legal situation on my hand, but they're true. Whatever I tell you, as far as I'm concerned, from where I sat, these, these things happened and they're real. But uh, mostly, most actors are easy to get along with. And, uh, and uh, you, you, you generally just have to find something about them and make a connection. I showed up on a movie that Dennis Weaver was the star of. And, uh, but, and Coolio was in it too, but Dennis, in my mind, was the star. And they came to me before I even met him. They said, Fred, this guy, he's grumpy. He's really grouchy. So watch out. He's, he's walking around. He's kind of got a chip on his shoulder. I said, okay. And so I finally, I usually tell them, I said, well, take me over there and introduce me. So I went to, to see him and he said, hey, how, how you doing? And I said, um, I, and I, I was just racking my brain. And I said, I said, I just wanted to ask you. And this is the first thing out of my mouth almost. I said, do you believe that the character of Norman Bates and Psycho was patterned after your character in Touch of Evil. He said, you're damn right it was. And that was it. All the attitude went away. We all became great friends. He had a great sense of humor. Uh, it was over. Whatever the tension was of him being on this set and being in this movie ended the minute I said that. And man, it was almost the second thing out of my mouth after hello. And uh, that was it. We got on. We got on great. I try to find something that they're interested in, whatever it is, and I try to connect with them right away. And from there on out, and it, uh, most people, you the best way to connect with them is don't talk about their career. You know, nobody, nobody, uh, nobody wants to. You know, nobody wants to uh, to be asked what it was like to be on McLeod one more time. You know. So if you want to get on with Dennis Weaver, you talked about other things, things that he was interested in. And that's how it would be with John Carradine or anybody else. They don't want to talk about House of Dracula. You know, you want to talk about boating, sailing, fishing, whatever it is they like. Um, and that doesn't mean you can't ask them about stuff like that. But if you want to get off to a good start with somebody, find what their interest is. You don't want to come off as like too much of a fanboy when you're no, working with You're supposed with them. to be a professional. You're supposed to be on the same playing field as them, you know? And a, a lot of times, you know, when somebody gives me a hard time, not necessarily an actor, but I will tell people succinctly, and I'm not, I don't trying to be a jerk, but I would tell somebody the last time I checked, I sign your paycheck. It's not the other way around. And, you know, you don't say that to a star, but it's true. And you want to be a professional and you want to be seen as a professional, not some slobbering fanboy who lucked into this job. And so you you don't want to do you don't want to say and do fanboy things around people, no matter who they are. So with regards to Ed Wood, I was curious. I know you did an interview with him, too, that eventually got released. And I think Mike Kopner's cult movies. Uh, what was your general impression of uh, Ed Wood? You know, I didn't realize how dire things were. 
uh, for the Wood family <clears throat> in 1978. But he was upbeat. You know, he was one of those guys who was just always seemed happy and up and optimistic of the future. And uh, he told me some funny stories. And I was just, I was, I was, I mean, I knew very little of him. And as you read later, you read, well, this is very sad. It's a very sad uh, scenario, but you wouldn't have known it by talking to him, you know, that he was almost, it was that he was probably within months of being evicted. You know, when we were dealing uh, with this project, you would never have guessed that by talking to him. I wouldn't have, you know, I didn't get any of that. Um, he was just very upbeat and he was, uh, I think, I really believe that he would have loved to have, lived long enough to see a resurgence of interest in, in what he did. You know, I think that would have been a big, that would have been a big thing for him. And I'm sorry that he didn't, that he didn't live long enough uh, for that, but you know, whatever he lacked in uh, getting fan adoration, it was sucked up by Paul Marco and Conrad Brooks. So there you go. <laughs> yeah. His two, uh, his two favorite actors to play the, uh, the cops in his movies, right? Yeah, I, I worked with Conrad and uh, I had a good time and and uh, he kept he always said that uh, next to Ed and and I think he said Fred Zimmerman that I was his favorite director. But I mean, if you look at Con Conrad's you know career, I was probably one of the only people that ever gave him any kind of a meaty role or anything, you know, and Paul Marco. I just left instructions at my front office never to let him in the door and and i'd never want to hear from him again well, can i ask why that was <laughs> well you know he was when they when hollywood chainsaw hookers was made it had a big premiere at the egyptian theater greg kinnear hosted it and and um for whatever reason i owned this movie and i had a distribution deal with a little video company called camp video and they put on this premiere party but they had neglected to include me. I mean, Dawn and I were literally guests at our own premiere. And it was all, it was as if they had made the film themselves and they had filled the room. The kid Natividad was there bouncing up and down. And then I saw Paul Marco dressed as a cop. I mean, he's still wearing this Kelt and the Cop costume. And the LA Times, which covered the, the premiere, made some mention of, of Paul Marco in his cop uniform. And they said, celebrity comes easy in events such as this. And um, he later through Conrad or somebody wanted to be in one of our movies. So I said, okay, uh, oh, let's talk to him because we're doing Beverly Hills Vamp, the movie with Britt Eklund and Pat McCormick. And uh, he came in and I had a one day role, two scenes, chief of police of Beverly Hills. And I talked to him a little bit and I said, uh, this is really cool. It would be fun to do this. I said, the role pays, and this is back in the 80s. I said, the role pays $200 for the day, two scenes. $200, I need $2,000. I said, well, we're not paying that, that that kind of money. And he kept shouting at me, Bela Lugosi, I married him, I buried him. And I went, yeah, and he said, my fan club alone cost me $2,000 to set up. I said, what's that got to do with me? I said, this is a one-day part. It sits behind a desk for two scenes. It's 200 bucks. And he started getting more and more excited and agitated. So I finally said, listen, I said, I'll take it up with the producers and I'll tell them what you want and I'll let you know. I mean, I was the producer, but you know, <laughs> whatever. 
So I got him out of the office. I just went out there and I said, don't let that guy through that door again. I said, I don't take any phone calls. I don't want to hear from him again. And it wasn't long after that, that the, the guys in like white coats rounded him up in somebody's front yard, uh, shouting that these dog headed men were out to get him. And they, they took him, I think they took him to a, a place where he could get some help. But that was about the last I heard of him. Yeah, it's interesting. So many of these, we were talking about this off air for my listeners. Uh, so many of these sort of uh, figures that were associated with Wood are gone now. You're sort of the the last one. You know, you worked with him uh, near the end of his life. You know, I'm, I'm assuming he was he was in need of money at the time. You you paid him to write this. Uh, what? But what I'm curious about is, you know, when Ed Wood sort of had his renaissance um, years after his death with. Uh, the Rudolph Gray book, I believe it was called Nightmares and Ecstasy. And then that was adapted into the Johnny Depp starring Tim Burton movie, Ed Wood. Uh, what do you think of the portrayal of Ed Wood? Uh, because I, I think it gives sort of, I was telling someone recently, I think Johnny Depp sort of portrays him as a wacky character and he's sort of romanticized in it. But there is sort of a a really tragic side to Ed Wood that doesn't really get covered in that movie. They sort of allude to it. At the right. end, where they talk about him ending up making like nudie movies and whatnot, but he sort of had a very tragic life later on. Yeah, well, you know, I don't, I don't think he ever wrote a crest. I mean, even Plan Nine, I think, sat and languished for a couple years before one of the lowest distributors in the business, DCA, put it out. I mean, Lugosi. I mean, I'm, I'm not sure, but I, I'm pretty sure that movie sat around for a couple years uh without a distributor and you know there there was a lot of there's been a lot of chatter as to who had actually owned bride of the monster and plan nine and stuff like that and, and night of the ghouls uh i was just stunned that night of the ghouls the negative was still in a lab because a lot of labs go out of business and they throw that stuff away how a movie lasted in a lab for 20 years with an unpaid bill is beyond me um but i don't ed you know, I think the, the, the guy Wade Williams paid some money to different people to sign papers, signing off whatever rights they might have. Uh, but Ed didn't own Plan 9 or Bride of the Monster. He didn't own any stake in any of those films. Um, you know, I know, and in some instances, I don't think anybody knew who did. They were just gathering paper from people who were associated with the film to uh, in order to pass it off as ownership. <laughs> I thought the film... I liked it. They they said, you know, that it didn't do well. And they tried to say it was because it was in black and white. But I thought black and white was the right choice. Um, I mean, it's it's what's what's the word for it? Um, there's a lot of theatrical license in the film. They acted like Bela Lugosi's. The only people at Lugosi's funeral were Ed Wood's troop of sort of, you know, misfits uh, in the in the movie. But Lugosi's funeral was not only attended by hundreds of people, but he was married at the time he died. You know, Bailagosi didn't live alone in his later years. He was married and he had a son. And they, they just kind of whitewashed all of that away. And Lugosi lived alone in a house with some dogs and he didn't have a wife and he didn't have children and all the stuff that we all know isn't true. Uh, but for the sake of the movie, dramatically, I guess it, 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 made, it made sense. You know, I think part of Ed's problem was is that he drank too much. He was an, he was a terrible alcoholic. And I think the people in the industry at that time that he was trying to work with didn't respect him, you know, because he would show up and he would be he would be, you know, drunk. And and the, these movies, like I said, hadn't been rediscovered. They were just like 
you know, black and black and white movies from the 1950s, no less. And now it's the 1970s. He hadn't made anything real in almost 20 years. And uh, and the people and, you know, doing these nudies and stuff is really was because I think he had a willingness to write them. And he was super fast. He was a super fast writer, you know, and as you if you've read his scripts and stuff, they're they're nonsensical. I mean, a lot of the sentences and the dialogue, that's what people love about him is, is that it, it defies convention. Yeah, I was going to say, too, it sounds like, you know, it sounds like he actually knew quite a number of people in Hollywood that maybe he never worked with them. But I know he was like drinking buddies with like John Agar. And, uh, you know, it seems like he knew people, but he couldn't get that break. And it, it probably did have a lot to do with like the, um, you know, the binging alcohol and whatnot. Well, look where they were. John Agar had no career either. By 1966, he was in Larry Buchanan's movies. Agar was a terrible alcoholic who did kick it. He did he did beat the problem. Aldo Ray, another one who, who was unhirable, was drunk all the time. You, you could hire him, but you wouldn't know if he would show up or not or what condition he would be in. I mean, I heard stories about Aldo and John Wayne on the Green Berets. And Aldo hated John John Wayne. He hated him. And he would be not shy to tell you this. But there, hey, let me tell you a story, though, that was told to me. And I don't know that I could believe it, but I don't know why. You ever hear a story that you just don't understand why someone would tell you this if it wasn't true? There was a Jerry Warren movie called Face of the Screaming Werewolf. Yes, I've heard about that. Yeah, with uh, and, I think there was like Lon Chaney. Uh, Lon Chaney was probably in it for a day or two. He played a mummy that never moved. And he did a werewolf transformation. And then a stunt guy took over wearing a werewolf mask for, you know, 90% of the movie. Lucky Brown, who was one of those old guys who worked with Al Adamson. And Lucky went all the way back to he was one of the little rascals. But he had a he'd been in Blood of Dracula's Castle. The, uh, he was in the astounding she monster giant from the unknown. But he was also a producer. And he had a studio called Movie Tech. And we shot a lot of little films there. It was a little one lung studio on seward street uh, across the street from uh, united color lab and lucky told me one day that somehow another ed wood came up and lucky told me that he worked with ed wood shooting some scenes second unit type scenes of a guy in a werewolf mask for this movie face of the screaming werewolf and that ed wood was the director of these new shots that Jerry Warren was putting into Face of the Screaming Werewolf. And I mean, I would have normally just said, oh, this sounds like bullshit, right? But I mean, why would Lucky know about Curse of the Face of the Screaming Werewolf or Jerry Warren and connect, connect Ed Wood to all of this? There must be something to it. I just don't know. I just don't know what it is. But, I mean, it was one of those stories that you kind of go, I've never heard this before. Bob Quarry, Robert Quarry was like that. I took care of Bob. I met him uh, in his later years and put him back to work and got him back into Hollywood. And I paid his rent. And he house sat for me and babysat for me. And he was really a member of our family. But Bob would tell you stories sometimes that you would say, oh, he's this is a bullshit story. And I was making a movie with uh, David Hedison. And right as the film was finishing, uh, I have my son, Max, was born. So it would have been 1999 or early 2000. Max was born in December. 
And we decided we were going to have a little party at our house and show off our baby. And Bob was talking about David Hedison, because I think they were both in the same movie, Fugitive Mind, I think it was called. And uh, But they never met. And Bob said, oh, I remember David Hedison back when his name was Al. He used to hang around the gym, you know, looking to pick up uh, girls. And, uh, you know, he was, he, was a, he was a real flirt. Al Hedison. And I'm like going, this is a bullshit story, right? So we're at the house. Bob's already there. He's shaking up a martini. David Hedison walks in and he looks, he looks over and, and Bob looks over and says, Al. And, and Hedison looks at Bob and he goes, Bobby. And I went, oh my God. <laughs> so, so many times, some of these weird, bizarre stories that some of these people tell you, they do turn out to be true. Out of curiosity, do you have a favorite uh, Ed Wood movie? For rewatchability, that's kind of like asking if you got a favorite Al Adamson movie, but I do. Um, I find Plan 9 to probably be the most fun because even though there's so many things wrong with it, there's a lot of things that are super right. Yeah, real quick, I mean, not, not to interrupt you, but I was going to say, I've always said to people that I think there's moments of brilliance in Plan 9, like the shot of Vampira in the fog and whatnot. It's a, I mean, it's really iconic looking. I mean, he had some iconic. level of talent. Yeah. It's an iconic. And, and Tor Johnson coming out of the grave and Tor Johnson carrying the actress, uh, these photos and, and the white contact lenses that he wore and they see her reaching into the car to get her. Some of this stuff is, is really pretty cool. And, you know, I mean, obviously you see all that weird stuff. I like, like the crypt where it looks like it only fit two people and they're trying to squeeze their way out that door. Um, but I mean, there was some really, there was some really cool stuff. I mean, the whole concept that Vampira was Bela Lugosi's wife and that she was buried in that dress. Okay. All right. <laughs> but no, I find that I find Bride of the Monster, I want to like it. I want it to be my favorite, but I find it kind of tedious at times, and it seems to drag for me. Even though Lugosi has a great role and he has a lot of dialogue, it's probably one of the best uses of Lugosi in his later years next to maybe uh, Meets a Brooklyn Gorilla or something like that. But um, I think that Plan 9 for rewatchability is a movie that I can actually put on every few months or so and watch it and enjoy it. I was going to ask too, since uh, I had mentioned you interviewed uh, Ed Wood and that that later got released in cult movies, uh, Mike Kopner's magazine. Uh, it sounds like Ed Wood had a penchant for maybe um, not self-mythologizing even, but he, he would often talk himself up in, in ways. Who's that? Ed Wood. Uh, you know, I, I don't know, because, again, you know, I asked him some questions and he flat out said he didn't know the answer. And, um, you know, he did talk about the budget and he talked about I asked if they were just repainting certain sets and moving them around and things of that nature. I don't remember it that that well. Uh, but yeah, I think he said at one point he was like saying that some of his movies were released by RKO. And I think you said in the article, you know, that's news to me. <laughs> Yeah. Well, you know, he did have some Westerns. Uh, maybe it was one of the one of those little obscure Westerns or something that he did. Um, and also, you know, like I, I it was funny because I was like in, in my 
my upcoming memoir, I was putting up uh, an ad for scalps from the newspaper. And I noticed that it was playing four, four or five RKO theaters and they're called RKO theaters. And I thought, well, it might not be too much of a stretch <laughs> to say that these, these played through RKO. Um, I don't, I don't know. You know, people, if I sat there, if I had a nickel for every filmmaker who made a movie that lost money, who said the distributors made millions, made millions and I got nothing. I mean, Ed Adam used to say that he said that about invasion of the blood farmers. Oh, they made millions and they, I don't know if they believe it. I know I don't, but, um, every guy who ever made a movie that, that bombed and, and literally ended their career, they always contend that the distributor just made millions, just made a million bucks. I and was going to say, I think it sort of goes with the territory in some ways. Like I, I know that you used to do some, um, wrestling promotion, right? Uh, as uh, fabulous Freddie Valentine. I think there's sort of an element of uh, you're always looking for your next gig and you kind of have to, I think at times as a filmmaker or wrestler, you have to maybe uh, pull up that carny charm at times to get people to really believe in you and get your next project off the ground. Well, you know, you've, the thing too is, and I've seen this in, in places where I hired people who could use a job and I put them to work and then somebody like psychotronic or something would interview them and they're talking about, Oh, you were in this bond movie and you were in this thing. And then, then they'd come to my film and then they, they'd sort of diss my film because all of a sudden they're feeling, you know, oh, I was in Tom Thumb and I was in the brothers Grimm and West side story. And uh, now here I am in phantom empire. And, and they've almost, they, it's almost like you're challenging them to have to defend being in a low budget movie years after their career was long over. And a lot of, a lot of these people, you know, it's a quite a step. I mean, I, I appreciate what I do and I, I enjoy the shows that we make, but it's a step down from being nominated for an Oscar to uh, being in Phantom Empire. And, uh, and a lot of these people, they're not really, they're, they're not being as upfront about things as they, they could be because you've put them on the spot. And you know what I mean? You don't want to say, yeah, I became an alcoholic and my best films took years for anybody would do it and it got terrible reviews. They're not going to sit there and say that. Why would they? You're sitting here and you're interviewing me about my stuff. I'm not going to sit here and trash my own my own work. And I know that some of it is better than others. And there are different levels of places that I've worked. Um, so, you know, you see that. I mean, I got that with with uh, with uh, Martin Beswick, who I truly, truly do love. And she was a, a good friend of mine. And I, I was aware, had wearing a necktie with a hand-painted naked girl on it from the 40s that Martine gave me for my birthday. But when she got an interview in some magazine, and they're talking about From Russia With Love and Thunderball and Dr. Jekyll and Sister Hyde, then they got the Cyclone, and she, she had some kind of backhanded compliment about it. And I'm like looking at this going, this was released nationwide by Columbia's TriStar Pictures. It was probably the last real film that got released everywhere that she was in. But at the moment she gave that interview, she, she, there was no way she was going to equate that to, you know, a hammer film or the bond movies. And so she kind of backhanded it a little bit. And I've always been disappointed when I read that because these people, a lot of these people, they need a job. And I don't know that, uh, I don't know that this job isn't paying their rent this month. Yeah, yeah. I, I was going to say, I mean, you and, and guys like Gary Graver and 
some of the other people that were working in in what you know some people have called the like you know you David Takatu, Gary Graver, Jim Wynorski were sort of known as the new poverty row, like the uh, old Republic Pictures and whatnot, like a new version of that in the eighties. But you guys were giving jobs to people like Britt Eklund, who you know Eklund was a big star when she made uh, you know Man with the Golden Gun, the Bond girl. But yeah. you know in the eighties. You know, she kind of fallen off. You guys were giving her work in stuff like Moon and Scorpio and Beverly Hills Vamp. I do think you guys were kind of helping these actors out. Well, and and and, and they weren't working for peanuts. Trust me. And you know, and a lot of people don't remember that I had I directed David Warner, who I thought was a fantastic actor. And David Warner was totally gracious, and stunningly so. And I certainly wasn't expecting it. I was expecting sort of someone sort of smug and stuck up, and dismissive of what we were doing. David Warner was, oh, you. this is my mark. You'd like me to come in here and then I'll see what's happening here and I'll, I'll do this, I'll respond. And I said, yeah, yeah. And he goes, right, let's go. And he'd do it and he'd say, uh, you want it again? Are you, you good? And, and he gave me a photo of himself from Time Bandits. He said, please, let's do more. And I thought, this is a class act. And a lot of people don't even remember that I directed David Warner <laughs> in a movie. <laughs> so. I'm curious, uh, since I mentioned the sort of slew of directors that you were associated with. I mean, you helped produce a number of films too, like Terror Night, which you've re-released as a bloody movie. Uh, you know, what do you make of the legacy of not just yourself, but all these other filmmakers uh, who were sort of peripherally involved with each other? You know, I, it was funny. I was recently watching the movie, um, the comedy Sex Bomb with Bob Quarry and uh, Linnea Quigley. And I didn't realize you were involved in that movie. It seems like there was a, sort of a circle of filmmakers all working in these sort of low budget films in the eighties. And uh, it was kind of like a, its own community in a way. It, it, well, it, it, it was, there was a boom of, uh, you know, the VHS boom that we, we called it. And um, it made filmmakers out of a lot of people who might not have been filmmakers. And some of us survived. The ones who should have survived, survived. And the ones who should have disappeared, disappeared when the crash came. Uh, but, you know, even, even as a young person, I was almost sort of like the, a godfather to a lot of younger filmmakers. And, you know, I would advise people and I was always or I tried to be generous with my time and advice. I would even look over people's distribution contracts and redline them for them so they wouldn't be taken advantage of if you were fairly new in the business. And you could either take my advice or not take my advice. And I want to tell you this, though. More than once, someone decided not to take my advice and lost every penny they had. And, you know, but I was very young, but I had, I don't know what it was. I had, a, I don't know what the word for it is, but I had my hand over a lot of stuff, you know, over a lot of things and people and things. And, and, uh, and people respected that because I don't have any I don't have any kind of an attitude. I don't have any chip. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm from West Virginia. I grew up in, in Florida. You know, I my original subtitle to my memoir was from the unemployment line to the Emmys. Uh, but it was, I thought it was too long. But I mean, I stood. I, I don't know if you know this, but I was a single parent. I picked up what, my oldest son in a parking lot with a paper bag, grocery bag of clothes and never saw his mother again. And he was four years old. And Is that I, Christopher? Yeah, I was on my way to California 
And I got here thinking I would work in a TV station because I have a very high rated FCC license. I had the highest in the country. But it was so unionized in California that no one there ever quit their job. So there was no place for me but the unemployment line. And the unemployment office, you used to have to go there in person. You used to have to stand in line. I called it the walk of shame. You had to stand in line for a while to get to the window. And I was standing in the unemployment office and I looked over the shoulder of the guy in front of me. It was, I saw his application. It was Wyatt Ordung. You're saying, who's Wyatt Ordung? Well, he directed Roger Corman's first movie, Monster from the Ocean Floor, and he wrote Robot Monster. And here he is right in front of me in the unemployment line. And the Fred Rave of me desperately wanted to introduce myself. I was so impressed. And I thought, you know, maybe he's as embarrassed standing there as I was. Maybe I'll let this one go. And I did, and I never saw or heard of him again. But the unemployment office was on Magnolia at Lancashire. And the building was torn down and the Television Academy building was put up there. And I said, I started out standing in the unemployment line on the very same spot that handed out the Emmy that I received as the executive producer of a TV show years and years later. And I thought, how strange this world can be. You know, I thought that was pretty amazing. No, it's wild. And now, you know, I, I just want to promote briefly here to uh, I think your son, Christopher Ray, is making movies now, too. He's come a long way from playing the uh, the monster in Biohazard, who I will never forget when I first saw that movie. I was in my like, I was probably like 12 years old. And uh, seeing, you know, Christopher Ray is the biohazard monster, I think stomping out that, you know, poster of E.T., uh, made me laugh hysterically. <laughs> well, we thought it. We thought it was funny. And if you think about it, he's undoubtedly the youngest monster in a suit actor ever to work in Hollywood. I would imagine at five years of age, he was probably the youngest person to ever put on a creature suit and, and play a uh, and and play a monster in there but see i had no i had no wife i was raising this kid and if i went overnight on a shoot he had to be there i thought at least if i put him in a monster suit i'd be able to see where he was all the time and we'd keep track of him uh but no and he wore suits in a lot of my movies uh even as an adult you know he was in star hunter and hybrid and things of that nature and he has his own career now and when we worked together we just came back from uh, buffalo a few months ago, and we made um, Royal Christmas on the Air, a TV movie for the fall. And we're about to do a film. I don't know if we're allowed to talk about it or not, but we're about to do a film in Los Angeles here in about four weeks from this Saturday, which uh, is a movie that I think would be very interesting to see how it goes, you know. I just wanted to touch a few, uh, a few more things here briefly. I don't want to take up too much of your time, but... When it comes to your films in the 80s, um, you know, what? how would you separate some of those films from the other ones? Um, like, like, for instance, you know, I assume there's a difference between making a movie like The Phantom Empire and making a movie like Armed Response or The Tomb, because I think those were like studio movies, right? Whereas The Phantom Empire, it sounds like that was more that maybe was like a passion project. That was me. Well, you know, I was working, I worked for Transworld Entertainment who wanted to be the new canon. They made killer clowns from outer space and creature with Klaus Kinski. And I was working there and I shared an office with Gordon Hessler, who was a director who I was 
I felt like I felt so bad for him. He was on his way out, having made a movie called Pray for Death, I think it was Shogasugi, a ninja film. And uh, as he was wrapping up, they told me, Fred, this is your office and you got to share it with Gordon for a while. And Gordon had directed Golden Voyage of Sinbad, you know, and the Oblong Box and Cry the Banshee and Scream and Scream again. And I'm sitting there and I'm thinking, I don't deserve to be sitting here. This guy doesn't need to be sharing an office with me. But that's how life goes. And I'm looking there and they're making money. And I thought I would like to have some of that. And coming up, riding the bus and standing in the unemployment line, I and growing up in a middle class family, I never had any money. So I didn't know how to spend money. So when you gave me more than it took to live, it went in the bank. I didn't know what to do. I'm still I still have a very bad problem with spending money. And I wanted to I wanted to own my films. I wanted to own some of my films. I wanted a piece of whatever the distribution money was. And we were on Commando Squad. And the last day, we were leading up to that, we had filmed in Bronson Canyon. There was a cave there. And at night, William Smith fought Brian Thompson in the mouth of this cave. And Gary had been lighting it up with colored gels. And it was naturally foggy and misty up there. And Ross and I were sitting at the trailers on the steps outside the honey wagons eating some pioneer chicken. And I looked over at this cave set up and I said to Ross, I said, you know, Ross, I said a clever person could make an entire movie in this canyon and never leave. And Ross said, Fred, you got to do it. You got to do it. I said, Ross, I'm right in the middle of a movie, bro. And he said, no, you, you should do it. And I thought, ah, I was kidding. So the last day was at Movie Tech at Lucky Brown's little one lung studio. And they had built a Quonset hut. It was a whole set with a ceiling and a net ceiling. And it was so cool looking. And it was the end of the show. And I thought, maybe I'll do it. I don't know. So I ran home and I wrote, I didn't even know what the movie was going to be about, but I wrote a six page scene where Ross and Dawn came to a, an old hut and bought a map to the center of the earth from Russ Tamblin. And I just told everybody, come back after rap. When the producers have left, 50 bucks per person, show up after rap, half hour, and we'll shoot this scene. And I did. And then Gary said, we watched it in the dailies. And Gary said, Fred, this is better than what we've been working on. Let's make this before Christmas. And this was November. So we did. And I owned the movie. And that's what I wanted. I own about 70 films now. And they continue to make money. It was one of the greatest things I ever did was invest my own money into making movies like Beverly Hills Vamp and uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers and Terminal Force. And, you know, owning my own films made a huge difference because there's always another new platform. There's, you know, there's VHS, then there was, you know, DVD, and then there was Blu-ray, and now there's Tubi, and it just goes and goes. So that was my, that was my whole thing was to take my own money and of course, I can't afford what Transworld was making. We were making movies for a million bucks a piece and more, but I could afford $140,000. I'm shooting 35 millimeters of Screen Actors Guild Union, you know, with Jeff Combs and Sybil Danning, people like that. Uh, and that's what I was doing. And I tell people this because it's still true. It's like I go to dinner and I don't mind dropping 100 bucks or something on dinner like I did last night. And it's nothing to me, 
but I'll stand there with a book in my hand that costs $30 and I will sit there and I will wring my hands over whether or not I want to spend $30 on a book that might give me pleasure for years to come. I mean, that's the old Fred Ray who had to sit there and think about every penny he spent. And some things don't mean anything to me. I mean, I won't fly coach anymore. I'm too old. It has to be first class. But and I'll spend whatever I want for dinner. I'll spend I, I spent two thousand dollars to go see the Eagles. I don't care. But I'll hold this book in my hand. It's twenty five bucks. And I'll sit there. And go, God, do I want to spend twenty five dollars on this book? And it's just it doesn't matter. It's who you are and how you grew up. I'm, I'm asking this question kind of jokingly. But since you mentioned Sybil Danning, you know, you've worked with her on a few films and you also appeared in one of her movies that she directed, L.A. Bounty. And uh, it will, I will never forget, your role in that movie was having Sybil Danning shoot you. Like, that was on purpose. <laughs> yeah, I was going to ask, uh, did Sybil have something she was trying to work out there? <laughs> yes, she did. I went over to see her and she was making this movie. I can't remember the name of the company, but they wanted me to direct this movie. And I went over to her house and she was she was she was a perfect hostess. I mean, she kept opening bottle of wine after bottle of wine. And of course, they they had the paycheck that I wanted, but they wanted me to guarantee the budget of the film. And if the film went over budget, they wanted the overage to come out of my paycheck and they wanted to defer part of it for six months. They would pay me later part of it. And I said, Sybil, I said, an actor shows up late or an actor quits in the middle of the show or a light falls. I said, I'm not going to be responsible for that. I've got, these are things I have no control over. I mean, if you're asking me to take responsibility for me to show up on time and put in my full 12 hours a day. But I said, otherwise I said, I would never make a deal like this. I would never do it. And she kept talking to me and talking to me, but it just wasn't going to work out. I just couldn't agree to their terms. So she got a, another guy, a very capable guy named Worth Keeter. And Worth Keeter came in and made the movie. And, and Sybil said, Fred, I would like to kill you in this movie. <laughs> I said, well, she goes, you could be one of Wingshauser's bad guys and I'll shoot you. And I went, because Gary Graver was the DP. And I said, yeah, okay. All right. So I went down there and they loaded me up with all these squibs back when the blood packs, explosive things. And, uh, and she quite enjoyed it, I think. I mean, they just, they fired off all of these blood hits and and uh, and uh, and uh, my hand was holding the gun. So when the explosive device came out, it hit me in the arm and it put about 25 holes in my arm. And, um, but I did it and it made her feel better. So before you go, I was wondering, uh, you have any new releases out at uh, Retro Media? Anything you want to plug there? Uh, because I really love what you release on Retro Media. I don't know which movies you don't have ownership of. One movie that I've always wanted to see a good release of, but I don't think you have ownership of it, is Bad Girls from Mars, which I don't see talked about enough. That's one of my favorite uh, sort of horror comedies. Uh, also, That's a great a role. For, yeah. It's a, a great role for Edie Williams uh, from the Russ Myers movies. Um, yeah. I, I love that you uh, would cast someone like Edie. And then uh, you mentioned Kitten and Tividad. I can only imagine what she was like at the... Uh, Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers premiere, but seeing I just, the first time I saw Kitten and Tividad, it was not in a uh, Russ Myers movie. It was in The Tomb. Yeah. So I love that you would cast all these great actors. Uh, well, she, took Mamie, so, she took Mamie Van Doren's place. 
Oh, really? Okay. Amy Van Doren made made things impossible for us to work with her. I, I finally let her go and replaced her with Kit Natividad. So, I mean, there, there, there was a different part. Mamie was going to sing a song in the bar and it just got out of hand. She was supposed to lip sync a record she'd already made. And she then she after making the deal, she wanted me to pay for a new recording session so she could have a new song. She wanted her own hair and makeup. She wanted a new wardrobe. And it just went beyond thousands of dollars. And we just said, look, we're not down for this. And uh, and we just we just uh, she threatened to sue us. Um, uh, but we moved on and we got Kit Natividad, which was an easy do. Um, but yeah, what, what was the other thing you were you? Were, oh, Bad Girls from Mars. Bad Girls from Mars was made around another movie. We had four days left on a movie called Demon Sword. And here in, in, in Hollywood, if you rent the cameras for three days, they give them to you for a week. It's called a three-day week. So we had to rent them for three days because we had a uh, three-day week because we had a four-day shoot. So on the roundabout, from you pick them up on Friday, you don't have to return them until Monday morning, a week from the following Monday. So you had them from Friday all the way to a week later on Monday. So that meant we had them sitting around for about five days, all this gear. And I said, you know what? I felt like very much like Roger Corman. I said, what could we do in five days uh, for no money? We had $19,000 extra in the bank. So I said, let's make, we'll make a movie about like Hollywood Boulevard, like the Corman film, Hollywood Boulevard, make a movie about people making a movie. I said, and then um, <clears throat> it was originally called Emmanuel in Hollywood. And we thought we'd get Edie Williams because it was a non-SAG movie. Uh, we needed non-union actors. And we knew that she would take her clothes off at the drop of a hat. And I said, all we've got are girls who will get naked. That's all we can afford. We don't have any budget for anything fancy or funny or any of that stuff like that. So we made the we made the, uh, Bad Girls from uh, Mars uh, in five days. And it's it outsold the Demon Sword, which was a $140,000 SAG movie. Uh, and Bad Girls from Mars, in order to get it released, we had to cut eight minutes out of it. So the but there is an there is a version that's eight minutes longer than the one that everyone's seen. And I said to the MPAA, I said, why do you want me to cut this? There's no sex in this film. There's just some some nudity. And it's very it's very tame. They said, yes, but it's the preponderance of nudity. It's how much there is. I said, well, that's all we got. I mean. Uh, and so we made a deal with Trimark, who later became Lionsgate. And we yeah, still, I was going to say that movie made a good bit of money for Lionsgate, we, given the budget. Yes, yeah. we still own. It finally came in at sixty grand, <clears throat> and the advance on it was maybe one hundred eighty thousand. So we were way ahead. And so we went ahead and made the deal. The deal was in perpetuity, though we never get the rights back, but we technically own the film. We never sold the film itself. And we own the copyright. And in a in a vault under my name uh, that I control is the cut camera negative of the full version. Oh my God! I would kill to see the full version. Oh, I would love to. Because see, there'll never be a Blu-ray for that because they only have a one-inch master, which was fairly crude for that time. And there's no way in hell I will ever give them access to the 35 camera negatives because they have failed to report to me for 20 some years. And when they brought it out on DVD, uh, we had our attorneys contact them and say, listen, we have a contract. You're supposed to report and pay them their royalties. And they said, oh, if you think we've wronged you, sue us. 
And they said, Fred, do you want to sue him? I said, listen, I'll tell you one thing I've learned in this business and you, your fan, your friends or filmmakers will write this down. It's hard enough to get money from somebody if you know for a fact what they owe you. But if you guess, if you're guessing they owe you and you have to prove what they owe you, a lawsuit is pointless. You'll never win. You'll never come out ahead. So bad girls from Mars keeps floating around. Maybe someday I'll get the attorneys to go after them to see if we can't just get the rights back. Um, or at least get the Blu-ray rights. But there, there, there's never going to be a Blu-ray of that or Beverly Hills Vamp or any of those films because these people who don't report to you and don't treat you right are never getting their hands on the negatives. That's really unfortunate because uh, Bad Girls from Mars is one of those uh, classic Jay Richardson roles. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, that and Warlords is another one. I think Lionsgate has Warlords. All they have is a one-inch. The only known negative tracks are sitting in my warehouse and they'll never get their hands on them. Never. They would have to come and pay me what they owe me. Uh, otherwise, they can just sit there and I'll pass them on to my kids. They make neckties out of them. Uh, wrapping up here, I'm, I'm curious, you know, what? something I've noticed when I go to movie conventions now is, you know, you have these actresses, the scream queens like Brink Stevens and Michelle Barr and, uh, Linnea quickly. And I noticed more and more, even though, uh, you know, a lot of people may know Linnea for, say, uh, Return of the Living Dead or Night of the Demons, or people may know Brink for uh, Slumber Party Massacre. I noticed more and more people are like me, where they, you know, I remember those actresses from your movies, uh, which I used to rent from the video stores. Uh, are you surprised by how much of a sort of resurgence of interest there have been in maybe not only your films, but Gary Graver's films, uh, David Ducato's films, Jim Wynorski, they really do have a cult following amongst a lot of people I know. Well, I think because we gave them better roles, they might not have been better, bigger budgets, but we gave, we, I, I gave Brink better roles than she had in other films. I mean, it, it would be hard to say that, that Haunting Fear is not her best, biggest and best outing as an actress. Although, you know, I put her in Mob Boss, which was a much bigger budget film, but Haunting Fear was her movie. And, you know, Linnea, she was great in Return of the Living Dead, but it was not her movie. And it, it, she was in part of an ensemble cast. Uh, and so, but all based on that, guys like Dave came up and did Creepazoids. And like Creepazoids is Linnea's movie. She is, and she is treated as the star of that film. And, you know, like for 30 years, can you imagine a, a distribution contract that lasts 30 years? 30 years Troma had the U.S. distribution rights to Haunting Fear. And like most of these distributors, they didn't report. No reports, no money, no uh, no anything. So I quietly, I thought, I thought I didn't think I'd ever live to see the end of that contract. I quietly waited because all they had was a one inch. So I knew they couldn't do a Blu-ray because there's no way they would ever get their hands on the negative because they hadn't treated me right. And then, and then like a year ago or whatever, the contract expired. So off I trotted with the camera negative and I made a beautiful Blu-ray of Haunting Fear. I mean, it looks like it was shot yesterday. It's gorgeous. And I just did a transfer of Terminal Force uh, with Richard Harrison, Troy Donahue, Don Wildsmith, Jay Richardson, and Michelle Bauer. I just did a camera negative transfer of that film and it's just gorgeous. So, you know, where there's a will, there's a way, maybe someday, you know. I was going to say, too, I think the other reason people like those movies with Linnea and Brink that you did is, uh, you know, 
I think you say it in the commentary for Jacko with Steve Latshaw. People forget Linnea is actually a very good comic actress. Um, yeah. And you kind of gave them, you know, more uh, comedic roles at times. And these these films were filmed very quickly. Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers, I think, was five and a half days. I mean, and then Evil Tunes, Evil Tunes, I think, was eight, eight days. But I mean, most of these films were between six and eight days, which is, I mean, heaven forbid. Piranha Women was four and a half days. But if you think about it, it was only an hour long. They wanted two half hour shows. And I said to Charlie, I said, you know, Charlie, for very little effort, because we filmed one half day. I don't know if you've seen the film, but we filmed one half day of them on a dock near some a marina. I said, I could go a longer day and you would have a feature. Might be 70 minutes or whatever it is, but you'd have a feature film. No, 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 not we don't. That's not that's not our model. I said, OK. And then I just saw Jim Wynorski's Killbots or Murderbot or whatever that thing is. They just made 45 minutes long. I mean, I don't know. Charlie is a genius. I've never seen anybody who is as clever and resourceful as Charles Band. He does things that nobody else could do. I could not take a 45 minute movie and make a profit on it. I could not take a one hour movie and make a profit on it. That's why I don't that's why I almost never make my own films anymore, because I don't know how to get that kind of money back in this market today. I do finance younger filmmakers. Yeah, people know, like Henrik Coteau and others. And, and yeah. Henrik and uh, Todd Sheets and Mark Polonia uh, and Ron Ford. I mean, there's a bunch of Steve Latshaw. There was a guy I gave money to for three different movies. And of course, Jacko didn't do well when we first made it, but it had legs, right? It did well in Japan, didn't it? Didn't you sell I, a lot? Of I, I don't, I don't know. There's so much piracy. Uh, a lot of these releases you see of scalps, there is no, there is no legitimate Spanish or French release yet. There's the Blu-ray. They just steal it. They just steal it and dare you to come to their country. And again, try to find them and try to punish them. And you can't do it. But um, Steve made a movie for us called Dark Universe. That was the first one we did with him. And we made it for nothing, 50 grand. That movie was unlicensed to print money. Right place, right time. Had some had some morphing shots in it when morphing was very expensive. And it made a ton of money. I mean, it made like $450,000. Terminal Force, $450,000, $500,000 for a $60,000 outlay. But now, today, I can't give Dark Universe away. I can't give Terminal Force away. I don't even plan to put it out on Blu-ray. I'm going to put Terminal Force right to Tubi and let it go. But Jacko, which, because same thing, probably was $50,000, whatever it was. Jacko did poorly out the gate, but over the years, it has grown and done very, very well. It's grown. It's got a fan base. We recently restored it from the original camera negatives. We're doing the same right, thing. You have a beautiful Blu-ray of it. Yes, and we're doing the same thing for Bikini Drive-In right now. We're restoring Bikini Drive-In. Oh, really? Drive I, I, I would love to see that, yeah. It's coming back from the original camera negatives, and it's a huge, huge, huge difference. So that's that's coming up uh, from Retro Media. Um, we have a project that Todd Sheets and I did, which we're very excited about, but we don't want to announce it because it's going to be a television, a Tubi premiere, and I don't want to start a giant buzz about it at a time when people can't go see it. I'm waiting for the release date. And once I know what day you can go see it, then we're going to dump, dump it on everybody. But there's no sense in getting heat now 
for something that won't be available 30, 40 more days. You want to dump it and get the heat when you can then tonight turn it on and watch this show. I was going to say, uh, my listeners had, had submitted two questions for you. Uh, the first, and I wanted to ask this myself, was I was talking with someone about Jacko recently. And, uh, you know, I love that film. Uh, you know, for as much as people attacked it when it came out, uh, and people can listen to the audio commentary you did with Steve, uh, you know, it reminds me of like an old episode of Goosebumps from when I was growing up. I think it's a very cute little film. Uh, but the question people always ask me is, was the commentary real? Because you have that like meltdown moment between you and Steve in the commentary. Was that was that legit? Was that was that a wrestling work or was it real? Was it a shoot? No, no, it, it, it wasn't a work. And I felt I felt I felt bad. I couldn't stop laughing. I mean, it was one thing for him to get up and walk out. I mean, obviously, I was I was having a fun with the because people had said things about it and I knew about them and and we were sitting there. <clears throat> what I didn't expect was that he would lock himself out. And this I, was I, over the film being you referenced a review calling it a shit pickle. Yes, yes, and um, I. I I I was I was dying <laughs> when he got up when he got up and stormed out of the room. I was dying, and then I heard the door rattling, and he was trying to storm. <laughs> he couldn't get in. I remember. I always thought it was at first. I thought, okay, this has to be a work. But then I remember when I was a teenager. After I'd watched the movie, I went on the old retro media forums, and I talked about how I liked the film. And Steve responded and thought I was like attacking him. He thought I was being, you know, ironic or facetious. Funny, and I'm like, yeah. no, I like this film. He just got really upset. It was kind of, that's, that's, I was like, wow. That's funny. That's, that, you know what? That was the last film we made together under those terms. But years later, after that, he decided to move to California and, and uh, make a go as a director. And like most people, the struggle is real. And I came up and he was there for a year or so working in a lab. And um, I had a movie called Invisible Dad that I was going to do. I think Karen Black was in it. Was that and one of the it, ones you did with uh, Justin Burfield from um, No, this was, uh, okay. this was, uh, no, those were three I did for Corman. This was for Andrew Stevens. And they didn't have, and I said, hey, how about letting Steve take a shot at this? I paid 2000 bucks for the script, but he did and they liked it. And so he got this incredible writing career off of Invisible Dad. The ones I did with Justin Burfield were the Corman films, which was Kid with the X-Ray Eyes. Roger let me make a downshoot of Man with the X-Ray Eyes. And I did Mom, Can I Keep Her with the Gorilla. Was and that I the one where you had Terry Funk in it? Yes. Okay. And I did one other one with Justin. I did the Kid with the X-Ray Eyes. I did... Uh, the the gorilla one, mom, can I keep her? And there was oh, Invisible Mom too. I did Invisible Mom too, and Invisible Mom too. There you go. There's another great cast. People don't realize Diane McBain is in Invisible Mom too. Mary Warnoff, Mickey Dolenz, Jonathan Hayes from Little Shop of Horrors. They're all in there. And and one of the movies had um, maybe it was Mom can Mom can I keep her? Had Laurie Nelson from Revenge of the Creature, right? In that. So, so again, it's just you got to look at the cast on these these old movies I did. They've got some do you, great. Do you still? I'm curious, and I didn't think to ask this, but do you still have? You know, I know with Jacko and some of your other films, you had like old footage of, say, John Carradine or Aldo Ray or uh, Cameron Mitchell. Do you still have like unused footage from things you just shot with some of these late actors? 
You know, it's funny you should say that. When I when I was doing Deep Space, it was just a movie about a creature that crashed in a UFO. And I mean, we made the movie, and then the 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 trans world said, "Oh, they they don't like that. We don't know what the creature is." So they devised that we would build this set, this laboratory set, and that we would turn this monster into a government weapon project. It's stupid, but you know we did it right. And they brought in James Booth from Zulu. And Norman Burton, who played Felix Leiter in Diamonds Are Forever and with Planet of the Apes, he was one of the guerrilla generals. They brought in a great little cast, and we shot this one day on a $10,000 set, 10000 bucks. And me, of course, it's just like looking at that Quonset hut. Same thing, Lucky Brown's studio, there we were. So I said to everybody, we, gotta, we should do something on this set before they tear it down. So I always wanted to remake The Indestructible Man, the Lon Chaney Jr. movie. So I called Aldo Ray. I said, Aldo, he was in town. I said, I'll give you a thousand bucks. Show up and do this scene. And you never knew if he was on the wagon or not on the wagon. So I said, I'm going to do it so that I never have to have Aldo come back. So at the beginning, he's, he's kind of executed in some experiment. And, and then and then in the morgue wagon, he's all burned up and the body comes back to life. But it would be another actor person with a burned head and mask. So Aldo came in and Richard Harrison came in, Jay Richardson came in, Don Wildsmith came in. We shot this scene. And at the time, we called it Terminal Force. It was before we made the Richard Harrison movie called Terminal Force. So they transferred the negative four weeks ago of my movie Terminal Force. And when I went through the negative footage, there it was. The lab had given them the original negatives from the Aldo Ray footage from the deep space sets. So now I have it. It's pristine. It's in HD. I don't know what to do with it, but the entire sequence of Aldo Ray with Richard Harrison, Jay Richardson, and all these guys, I have it. I just and it's been transferred from 35 and it looks great. The problem is 35 millimeter looks great. What the average kid, you know, that we can hire or a young filmmaker, they can't match that look. So it's always going to look like you cut somebody else's movie. Because you got Gary Graver and you got people and you got these sets and stuff. No, no young filmmaker that I could give this footage to would be able to match the quality. Right. I mean, because Graver is like people forget Gary Graver worked with like Orson Welles, you know. Gary Graver shot part of Enter the Dragon. He shot part of Raiders of the Lost Ark. He shot part of The Howling. I mean, Gary shot all those John Cassavetes movies, Death of a Chinese Bookie, Child Bride of Short Creek. Uh, You know, Gary was a major player and if he had time and equipment he did excellent work and this footage i just saw it it's fantastic and i I, and like i would maybe give this footage to a young filmmaker and some money to finish the movie but their footage wouldn't it wouldn't match i don't believe it would match very last thing i wanted to ask you i promise to let you go uh i wanted to ask about this movie that retro media released that for years was like seemingly lost it originally came out as terror night uh, or the bootlegs were Terror Night when when it was on VHS, but you released it as Bloody Movie. Uh, and one of the producers of Dude, Where's My Car was involved with it. Uh, the great Andre de Toth probably co-directed a few scenes. Andre de Toth, for people that don't know, uh, was the famous one-eyed director who made the House of Wax 3D with Vincent Price in the 50s. What's the story on that movie? Because everyone's in it. Alan Hill Jr. from Gilligan's Island, Aldo Ray, Dan Haggerty. All these different, uh, you know, horror movie stars. What's that? John Ireland was in it. Cameron John Mitchell. Ireland. Yeah, I was going to say even Michelle you know, Bauer. Yeah, Michelle really Bauer. Cool. I even noticed uh, there's a few actresses uh, from like 
Sorority Babes and the Slimeball Bolarama. There's a lot of notables in that movie. What is the story on that movie? I've always heard it was a very troubled movie, that there was maybe a mob connection to it. I don't know if you could talk about that, but what is the story on Bloody Movie? Well, there were two films. There was a guy named uh, Nick Marino. His, his, uh, he's, he's passed now. His real name was uh, Nicholas DiMartino. His father was Pauly the Butcher DiMartino, the mob boss. Yeah, he did another movie, I think. Death House. There were two movies. Okay. Death House was their big budget movie. It had John Saxon and uh, Tony Franciosa and uh, Superfly, whatever his name was, Ron O'Neill. And, 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 and they put all their money into to this movie. But Nick was a fan of old classic films. That was his thing, old classic movies. So he had the second script. I don't know why he didn't ask me to direct it. Most people don't. Most people that I know don't ask me because they want what they want their way. They don't want to hear me tell them that they should do it a different way, right? So there's a lot of films made by friends of mine where they, they, they you, I, I would sit there and go, gee, why didn't you call me? You call me to fix it later, but you know, you didn't call me when the job was there and the paycheck was there. And it's because they, I don't know if I, I don't know if I have an overpowering personality or what, but if you don't know what you're doing, I'll try to help you not make a huge mistake. And a lot of people don't want to hear it. So they made, uh, they made uh, death house and they made, uh, and in death house, they kept shooting the end of the movie. John Saxon was the director and the star. And they finally, Nick called me and he said, Fred, can you come shoot the end of this movie? He goes, we tried three times and we're not happy. And I said, well, okay. So I go on Death House and I shoot the Bronson Canyon sequences where the zombies, Mike Pataki was one of them. Uh, Dennis Cole, Tony McClure was in it. And I shot the end of the, uh, the movie. John Saxon had to be in it. He's now not the director anymore, but he's still the star. So I have to work with John Saxon. He was very professional. And I said, I'm sorry that this is going down this way. I, you know, but let's just, can we just get on with it? And he said, yes, I, let's just do it. So we did it. Well, they loved it. So then they come to me and they go, well, we need some action at this one point. I don't know if you've seen the movie, but there's one point I've where- I've seen it, yeah, with uh, Anthony Franciosa is in it too, I right. think, yeah. Tony, uh, Dennis Cole's in a car and there's a drug deal or something going down, plastic explosives shaped like Jesus figures or whatever. And Dennis Cole rushes in and the car hits another car and it blows up and there's a little kung fu. And so I, sh I shot that, I directed that. And uh, and then and I just finally said, look, guys, you know what I mean? I, it was- I, I never asked if I was getting paid. I never got a dime, <laughs> I didn't get a single dime. And I was like three days. I worked three days on that, directing uh, bits and pieces of that. So then this Terranite comes along. And initially, and I could be wrong, but Ken Hall, Kenneth J. Hall, was going to direct it. I believe and Kenneth wrote, did Evil Spawn, I think, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He wrote Terranite too. And his brother Cleve was going to do the makeup effects. And then Nick. For some reason, Ken moved on. I don't know if they had a difference of opinion. And then Nick got mad at Cleve, and they were mad at me. And I said, what are you mad at me for? And he said, because, because you used them. I said, well, yeah, but that doesn't, that's not a necessarily a recommendation that you should hire them. You hired them on your own. Nancy Pololian was my personal assistant. She'd been at Transworld, and then when she got let go, I hired her, and she was one of the people who produced Hollywood Chainsaw Hookers with me. And later went on to do Dude, Where's My Car and Antoine Fisher. Uh, so she does, uh, she, she line produces Nick's uh, Terror Night. And Nick, being a movie fan, he fills it up with all these old, and there's all these flashbacks, you know, like John Ireland had played 
Zorro or all these old classic. And I think he turns out to be a robot. I don't know. It was really a mess. So Ken leaves the project and Nick was making porno movies for uh, L.A. Video. And the guy directing them was a guy named Fred J. Lincoln, who had been in Last House on the Left. Right. And then he ended up doing a bunch of porno. Yeah, he yeah. Was, he was Fred Lincoln was the director of Terror Night. So it goes into the movie a few days or so into the movie and Nick gets mad. Nick had a volatile temper. He wasn't really dangerous in my mind, but he had a big mouth and he talked loud and shouted all the time. And was I was lo- he like was he like I've always heard that he was like a stereotypical image you would get of like the Italian mob guy. Yeah, he had the heavy he had the heavy he had the heavy accent. You know, he had the peep shows in New York and he was connected and some one time uh, he he came back and he uh, you don't know LA but he said meet me at you meet me at Twain's restaurant which was a little corner Denny's it's like it was there on the Coldwater in Ventura and we we have breakfast and he says look over your shoulder he goes there's two feds back there they've been following me since I got off the plane I look back and these two guys in suits are back there trying to have their breakfast and he goes these guys have been following me they think I'm up to something I said oh that's crazy man. So anyway, Fred Lincoln gets fired off of Terror Night. And then Nick, they say, they say, quote unquote, that Nick directed the rest of the movie, but it, but it was Andre de Toth who had an eye patch. You only had one eye. And you asked Michelle Bauer, because Andre de Toth vehemently denied that he had anything to do with that movie. And Michelle will tell you that he directed every scene she was in. Billy Butler probably tell you the same thing, that he was director of all the scenes that he was in. And Andre was, uh, he had a, he had a neck brace, you know, like uh, he had all those plastic neck braces and the eye patch. And I watched him one night on Terror Night, or not Terror Night, but Death House at Bronson. There was a generator around the cave and the cables ran. I saw Andre trip over the cables and do a complete header off the side of the-, the So Andre de Toth was also connected with Death House. Yes, he was there at the Death House. He didn't direct it. I was directing it, but he was there. He was good friends with Nick and he was hanging out and he fell- I watched him take a header over some cables in the dark outside Bronson Cave. So I'm guessing the neck brace was a precursor of something that had happened to him before. But for the most part, part of it was directed by Fred Lincoln. Part of it was, uh, most of it was directed by Andre de Toth. I don't know if Nick directed any of it, but I think in the long run, they didn't know who to give the credit to. Andre didn't want it. Nick didn't like Fred at that point. So I think Nick took the directing credit for, uh, for, for, for Terror Night. And I got nothing out of, uh, I think I got a special thank you on uh, Death House. That's all I got. So, you know. Was there a reason it, it, but like Terror Night, I don't think it ever got like a legit release until you released it as Bloody Movie. Was there a reason for that or? Um, You know what? There was a problem with a company called Double Helix out of New York. And they, they had these films with Double Helix. And I'm going to say that this is my opinion because I want to make sure my memory is not foggy. But there were a lot of, there was a lot of, you know, mob type money in these movies. And there was a guy named Marty Ticotti, I think it was. And Marty got busted and was sent up the river after the party uh, for uh, Death House. And they suspected that Double Helix was stealing from them. So they sent a guy, a couple guys over to Double Helix in New York, and they hung the guy out the window by his ankles, threatening him to give them an accounting and pay them what he owed them. They thought it would 
scare him. It scared me. Uh, but it didn't work. The guy turned and called the feds. And now Nick said, I don't know what to do. He goes, now they're watching every move we make. And then Double Helix went bankrupt. And at the time I put these movies out, Nick didn't have possession of the negatives. All he had were the one inches. I thought Terror Night was too generic a title. I said, I don't know what that tells anybody. So I saw it and I knew that Nancy had gone on to do Dude, Where's My Car? And she did a movie called Something Movie. Oh no, a scary movie or whatever it was was popular. So I said, I'm going to call it Bloody Movie from the producer of Dude, Where's My Car? I'm trying to figure out a way that I could make some money for these guys. And I put it out and um, I did the same thing with a movie with Betsy Russell and I called it Camp Fear. And that was a retro title. That's the only time Camp Fear was ever Camp Fear was when I put it out on DVD. It was actually called Millennium Countdown. And again, I said, I don't understand what Millennium Countdown means and who would buy it. But Betsy Russell had been in cheerleader camp or something, right? Yeah, yeah, cheerleader camp, yeah. <laughs> so if that was her name. So I changed the title of the movie to Camp Fear, and it did okay. And now you look up Camp Fear, and that's the only – people don't remember. It was called Millennium Countdown. That was the name of Camp Fear before I released it. I was going to say, too, so Marino, he's actually in one of your movies. He's in Mob Boss. He's in a bunch of them. He's in Mob Boss. He's in Fugitive Rage. Uh, he's in uh, Fugitive Rage. Not Fugitive. Yes, Fugitive Rage had Catherine Victor from all the Jerry Warren movies. She's in that. Uh, but Nick was in. Um, he was in a bunch of these. I, I can't remember all of them. But uh, yeah, he was in. Uh, he was in uh, Mob Boss, and uh, that's him. You see him. He wasn't an actor. That was Nick. But he was also in uh, Fugitive Rage, and he was in a couple other things. What's that? So, so I know people talk about the mob thing when it comes to Marino. You know, was that as uncommon in like low in the low budget film world? Because I know there's the stories about, uh, you know, Vortex Pictures, the people who did Texas Chainsaw, that being like a mob front. Was there, you know, like mob people involved in like low budget filmmaking at the time? Was that more common? I don't think so. People accused me of hanging out with mob people, and they named friends of mine who I had no clue, as far as I was concerned. They weren't a part of any of that, but the porn business was, and LA video was camp video. Camp video was a legitimate branch off of LA video where Nick made porn movies, Salvatore Rikiki. And those guys, you walked in, you, I never saw so many uh, surveillance cameras in your whole life. I walked into their front office and there was a case like you put donuts in but it had Uzis and AK-47s and stuff laying in a case in the lobby. Work, you weren't spooked by any of this? like. Well, yeah, I kind of was. Um, it made me nervous. I mean, that's why I remember it today. Uh, and, of course, Salvatore Kiki ended up in prison. I mean, it, it, it's, it's just, you know, eventually, you know, Nick never had any real trouble, uh, you know, because he always had kind of fringe business as he was fathered in, grandfathered into the Greenwich Village area with an adult peep show where they outlawed him. But if you were already in there, you could keep your business. He was right on the line. So what do you think happens? He's right on the line. No one's allowed to have this kind of business in this area. What happens? Next thing you know, he's got all kinds of partners. Everybody, you know, everybody who's made wants a piece of Nick's business because he's the only one who can legitimately legally have this adult bookstore video store on the edge of Greenwich village. So now Nick had to take on, you know, partners 
And then eventually he opened um, a little restaurant, a little pizza slice joint right next to it, trying to get his son, Paulie Jr., trying to get his son into like a restaurant business and stuff, trying to, you know, get this kid, you know, on the right path. You know, because Nick was like me. He was like a single parent. You know, he had little Paulie Jr. there. <laughs> it was a nice kid. I had him over for Thanksgiving a few times with his dad. But we were all friends, and Nick knew Dave Dakota because uh, Dave had worked for L.A. Video, uh, making some of the L.A. Video titles before camp came along. And um, I met Nick when Jimmy Maslin, who had rescued Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs from obscurity and put Herschel back on the map. Jimmy started out by licensing Blood Feast and 2000 Maniacs to camp video. And then Ray Steckler came in there. And so we were all sort of, it was very communal at Camp Video. It was Jimmy Maslin, Ray Steckler, and it was me and Dave Dakota were kind of the straight guys doing you know horror releases through camp. But camp was, was really L.A. video, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm glad we got to talk about this because Nick Marino... Uh... I've always been fascinated because there's not much that seems to be known about him, uh, but he seems like quite a character. And it seems like he really did want to get involved in making movies. It seems like he, he had a love for that. He loved movies. And almost all of his porn films were based on classic films. And we tried to, eventually we tried to find the home for him. He did In and Out of Africa. And he made Play It Against Samantha with, I think, Nina Hartley. And uh, he did a Gone with the Wind one called Blowing in the Wind. I mean, he, he would make porn films with titles that were sound alikes to classic films that he loved. And he was a blustery guy. He was a blustery guy and people were terrified of him. Uh, but I wasn't. And we we're in this cave on death house. And it's now it's second meal. If you know what that is every six hours, you come in at seven in the morning, they have to give you lunch by one o'clock. If the lunch is, uh, it's usually 30 minutes after last man. So if it takes 10 minutes for everyone to go through the lunch line, then you got to give them 30 minutes. So it's usually 40 minutes. So you come back at 1.40. Now you can work until 7.40. But at 7.40, you owe them what's called a second meal. You owe the, you have to feed them again. And usually it's a walking second meal because most people are wrapping up and getting ready to leave. So you want something in your hand like a pizza or a hamburger, something you can continue to work with and hold it. And we're in this cave and it's 740 and the crew and people are starting to grumble. They want, they want something to eat. And I hear Nick yelling, I'm not buying one goddamn thing. I'm not buying that. I don't even see him. I just hear him. You can always hear him. I had to put a pillow in the vent on my wall when I, my office was next to him to try to cut down listening to him in the other office when he was next door to me on Sunset. And he's yelling, I'm not. And I finally, everyone just went deathly quiet. I'm, I can't see him, but I can hear him. And I yell. I said, you buy the goddamn hamburgers now. And everybody went quiet. And then I heard, all right, I'll buy the goddamn hamburgers now. <laughs> and they all got to eat. But that was the thing. People were just terrified of this guy. But he never put a hand on anybody. He was just this kind of like sort of bigger than life Italian character you know who was he related to again paulie di martino paulie the oh, okay. martino and um you know i, I it's just, it was just so it was just so he was just so funny I, I i won't tell you the producer but a producer friend of mine was out of line but he went to nick 
And he wanted to know if Nick could help him take care of some guy that was giving him a problem. And Nick came to me, he goes, well, what are you saying about me? He goes, you know what that guy said? The guy said he wanted me to help him take a guy out and rough him up and goes, what the fuck, you know? And I, I said, listen, I said, I got nothing to do with this. I said, I don't know what the hell you guys are talking about. And he goes, this is bullshit. And he walks away. Three weeks later, he calls me, he goes, that friend of yours. I said, yeah. He goes, do you ever get his problem taken care of? I, <laughs> I, said, I, I, I said, I don't know. <laughs> I said, but stay out of it. And he, after all this protesting, he comes back and he goes, hey, do you think I still got a problem? <laughs> they offered me all this Italian tile one time. They had, I don't know, it was stolen. It was in a locker off of Nordoff. And he had to go over there and he straightened it up and he goes, did you need any Italian tile? And the other thing was just nothing but square white tiles. Italian tiles. Wow. <laughs> well, I want to thank you again, Fred and Ray, for coming on Parallax Views. I'm really looking forward to your memoir. Buy my book. Buy my book. And Deep Red. People need to. We didn't talk about it nearly as much as we should have. But and Well, if you go to Makeflix, makeflix.com, you can get a signed copy. And if you go to retromediapress.com, you can get a, a personalized signed copy. Retro Media Press, one word, dot com. And uh, we can get you, uh, and I'll personalize it for you. If you go to Makeflix, you can get it. That's just basically signed. Or you can get it anywhere else books are sold. My memoirs are coming out soon. All I'm waiting for right now is I'm waiting for some celebrity endorsements, uh, which I'm gathering. So you want those blurbs on the back of your book. And that's all we're waiting on right now. It's 300 pages. I have to tell you that memoir. Inside I think it, track. That well, I was going to say that memoir may end up rivaling Charles Band's memoir that came out recently. <laughs> so, Charlie's was great. Charlie's was a, that was a great book. I read it cover to cover, and Charlie was one of the first people to endorse my memoir, and so I am very grateful to him. He's a genius, you know. He really is. Well, thanks again, Fred Owen Ray, and uh, everyone. Check out. Uh, retro media, uh, make flicks. Anything else uh, that you want to plug real quick here? I just uh, watch my Christmas movies. Watch my Christmas Royal Christmas on Ice. I know people, you know, fans come to me and they say, "Gee, I hope you make another film soon." I said, "Dude, I make three films a year." I said, "You're not watching the right channel." If you look at some of these night, these Lifetime movies I make, they're horror films. They're Fred Ray. One of them is a, actually it is Haunting Fear. It's called Deadly Shores. It takes place in a lighthouse. But it is Haunting Fear. And if you watch the end of the movie, I literally recreated the end of Haunting Fear shot for shot. No one ever seems to notice it, but I did. I was going to say, I, I want to second your recommendation. Is I always tell people, if you love all these like exploitation slash, you know, Neo drive-in type movies that came out in the 80s. I mean, that's what Lifetime movies and a lot of the Lifetime thrillers. They're like the new age exploitation movies. <laughs> oh, Stage Fright. That's my Phantom of the Opera. You go, you see Stage Fright or you see uh, Deadly Shores. Those are uh, those are very much uh, horror films. Uh, and that's probably why I haven't done a lot of Lifetime lately. I'm I'm the one guy who will not toe the line. I'm the one guy who will not who will not bend to the formula. So there you go. And thanks for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Fred Olin Ray and that you'll check out his book, Deep Red. 
Also, be sure to check out Retro Media, Fred's company that releases a number of his movies, as well as other low-budget genre films that are a whole lot of fun. As always, if you appreciate the work I do here at Parallax Views, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like right. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.